let's say a short prayer together again, if you join me, all right? Would you do that again? Lord, our love does sometimes seem cold, and that is the worst sin we could ever commit in this world, to not love you, whose love is so great. We pray that you would quicken us and awaken us, and even by the word today, that you would foster and strengthen and deepen and awaken our love for the Savior. And it's in his name we pray it. Amen. Romans chapter 15 is our text this morning, although I'm going to start with uh, some other things, but we'll get to that in a moment. Romans 15. So, you know, I've been talking to you last week and then now today again about missions giving, giving financially to the worldwide global mission of God to unite the world to himself in Jesus Christ. That's God's purpose for the entire universe, Ephesians uh, chapter 1. And God is working that out right now by saving souls, by saving individuals, by working in hearts all around the world in every tribe and language and nation and tongue and bringing people into the kingdom of His dear Son. And as He does so, they are brought into communion with Him, a relationship with Him. No one is in communion with God who is not in His Son. And our part as a local church in Houston, Texas, is to support, to encourage, to pray, to give, to do everything we can to be fellow laborers, partakers with those who are doing that work in far-off places, to be fellow laborers with them. And that's what these couple of weeks are all about, thinking and praying about that, in particular, our financial involvement in supporting that global cause. And so I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about that today. Lord willing, I plan to go back to Matthew next week, but next Lord's Day, I'm going to ask to... That, that I'm going to ask you for a commitment. We'll have little cards that you can fill out so that we can get a sense of what our congregation is going to do and, and that, that you can keep as a reminder for yourself in terms of your commitment to the cause of worldwide evangelism financially. We're going to do that next week. And I wanted to start today by just giving you a little overview of some of the partners that we have connected with through the years and um, encourage you to pray for these and to uh, consider them as you pray about uh, what you're going to do this coming year in terms of missions giving. And uh, so I wanted to share with you a few of them. Uh, I won't give you all of them. There are some of them that we've supported for a long time who are now um, ending coming toward the end of their uh, lifetime of service. They've served the, the Lord faithfully for years, and we continue to 
support them in, in small ways uh, in their, um, as they're coming to their retirement and, and still serving the Lord in every opportunity they can. But, but we have a number of folks who are very active, involved in, in serving um, in different places. One of the ministries that we have supported for many years is Berean Baptist Bible College and Seminary. It's in southern India. Berean is a Bible college and seminary that trains men and women for the gospel ministry and for Christian service. They've graduated hundreds, probably now thousands of young people through, mm, I don't know how long it's been going, 30 years or so uh, of, of ministry there in southern India. And the blessing about this ministry is that men and women come to this college from all over India and the surrounding countries. And then when they leave there, they're encouraged and challenged to go out into a needy place and do a work for the Lord, whatever that is, whether it's planting a church. And many, many churches have been planted by graduates of this Bible college and seminary. There have been orphanages that have been started. There are Christian schools that are up and running, training young people in the ways of the Lord from their youth. There are, um, there are missions, evangelistic missions that are not yet formed into churches that are penetrating all over India and the surrounding countries as well, some of which are very difficult for any outside Christian to get into. And so when we support them, we are supporting not just one uh, individual locality, but a hub from which the gospel goes out far and wide in one of the most populous countries in the entire world. We also support a ministry by the Colson family in the Chook Islands. This is far out in the reaches of the, of the Pacific, and uh, it's a scattering of islands, other, otherwise called Micronesia, uh, the Federated States of Micronesia. I don't for, forget how many islands there are. There's, I think there's scores, if I'm not exaggerating. I could be forgetting, but there are a number of islands scattered all about this uh, area, and uh, they are based on one of the islands. They've begun a couple of churches now, and then from that island, the, it also is a kind of a hub where the gospel is going out to all of the other islands. And they're doing that in two ways. One is by uh, mission endeavors where they get in a boat and go out and travel to another island and distribute gospel literature and preach the good news of Christ and visit in the hospitals and tell people about Jesus. And then also through the ministry of a radio station which broadcasts the gospel as far as people can pick it up on their stations on a number of the other islands around there. And so we see once again the gospel going and then spreading out from where, uh, where this hub is. We also support Brother Edgar Begali, who travels all over the Middle East. Brother Edgar planted a church in Beirut, Lebanon many, many years ago. That church grew up to where it was self-supporting. Um, the men were trained there in that ministry. Uh, a brother is leading that congregation and now... Brother Edgar is traveling all over the Middle East, strengthening, encouraging, establishing churches, connecting ministries here in the United States with other ministries all over the Middle East. And uh, they have seen a number of things happen. They have seen churches planted. 
They have seen Christian schools begun, one of which we support in southern Sudan. We, they have seen radio stations uh, created, including uh, three radio stations in the country of Iraq. Um, and all over the Middle East, the work of God is going forth in Egypt and in North Africa, and uh, Christians are being strengthened, and people who have been trapped in darkness, religious darkness even, are coming into the light of Jesus Christ. We've also supported for a number of years Regeneration Reservation in Arizona, which ministers to Native Americans. They have, um, there is a church that has been established, a local congregation that, that, that ministers, and it becomes a kind of a base, once again, a kind of a hub where the gospel goes out from there into the jails, into the drug rehab centers, um, and you know, that, uh, they're, they're, that drugs and alcohol are just so prevalent. So many people are ensnared. They're, they are literally slaves um, to drug and alcohol addictions. And, uh, and, and like any, anyone in the, who is lost, they're a slave to their sin and to the passions of their flesh. But by God's grace, they're seeing people liberated from that. One of their greatest ministries is the distribution of literature and audio materials in native languages, in Apache and Navajo and a number of the other um, native languages. And, and they've recorded DVDs of um, believers, native believers, giving their testimony of how Christ got a hold of their lives and transformed them by the gospel. And they've distributed that all over. And so the gospel, once again, is going out far and wide from that little hub in Arizona We've supported uh, the Roggen camps in Mexico, who for many years uh, labored in a little mountain village in Sonora in western Mexico, and now are laboring in another town and uh, strengthening another church there. They've seen churches planted. Uh, they, have, uh, they have also seen missions go. Brother Jim was just telling me last time he was here that the church that they're, they're at now, where they're pastoring and strengthening, that little church is sending out a little groups to, to do evangelistic missions in local communities that don't have good Bible-preaching churches. And so, once again, the gospel is spreading forth there in Mexico. We support Brother Eric Mossman, who was just here a few a uh, couple of weeks ago, I guess, a few weeks back. And uh, Brother Mossman, for many, many years, labored faithfully in Cameroon, in, in West Africa, and now is laboring in North Africa as the Lord felt him, uh, the Lord led him in his burden to shift to uh, focus on Muslim background people and winning them to Christ. And uh, so the way that the ministry works in North Africa is that uh, there is a website that uh, proclaims the gospel and offers a free gospel, a free um, New Testament. Uh, a Bible to those who are interested and people contact the website. They can do it fairly anonymously because there's a lot of pressure in that part of the world. And so they will meet, he will meet them in a local coffee shop and give them a Bible and begin to talk to them about the Lord. And uh, he's had many, many good conversations. This man has a great, great passion for, uh, for people and for the lost around him. And the Lord has used that in a great way. They've seen many, many uh, uh, folks um, saved, not just him, but through his, um, his team of, of missionaries there. 
and uh, are seeing now young Christians beginning to be discipled. We heard not long ago, I remember uh, a series of texts that went back and forth with, between him and a person who was discovering the glories of Isaiah 53 for the first time. A man who said, Eric, have you ever read Isaiah 53? This is amazing. And, and you know, things that you and I cherish, we memorize, we love, we see our, the beauty of Christ. And here's eyes just beginning to open. And that man is now then brought into the Christian assembly there for the first time and received as a fellow believer. All of these things that are fruit to our account. Brother Mike Smith um, has had a ministry we've supported for many years of traveling to help little church plants out in the western part of the United States and other countries around the world. Missionaries who are laboring with very small amount of support to be able to build their first building and to have a place where the congregations can meet and is a blessing to many missionaries around him. And then uh, Brother Erica, uh, brother uh, Gassim and Sister Erica in South Sudan, I mentioned a few minutes ago, who are laboring there in a local church ministry, a Christian school that they began about five years ago with just a handful of students. Now they have several hundred. Um, the, the ministry there has grown very uh, broad, very, very quickly. And uh, they need a lot of prayer that they would be strengthened, that they would be solid, that they would be um, that the gospel would be made clear and that Christians would grow and be deepened in their walk with the Lord. Uh, they have seen wonderful things in, in the, the Lord's saving lost souls. And then uh, we've supported uh, ministries in France, um, the Coles and the Bixby's who have labored together as a team in northern France, planting a church in the heart of Paris and uh, in a place that has had by God's grace, a lot of testimony of the gospel through many centuries, but yet in many ways has turned their back. Um, and, and now there are young people growing up who have hardly heard the name of Christ. And uh, so they're going there in kind of a post-Christian world and saying that the kingdom of Christ is not defeated and that the gospel still has the power to change lives. And we've just begun to support the Pates, who have just moved to Brazil just a few weeks ago. And they have begun a ministry of laboring to train rural pastors all over Brazil, many of whom have been called by God, who have a Bible, but not much more. They have the Bible, amen, and they have the Holy Spirit. But God is giving them, through His grace, another blessing, a man who is... Uh, well-equipped in teaching the Word of God to come and to encourage those brothers who are in some cases are laboring in a very, very lonely place with just a little handful of converts or maybe none at all. That they're, just, they're preaching the gospel and Brother Pate has a desire to come alongside them and support them and encourage them and teach them and train them and equip them so that when he leaves, that ministry is stronger and more secure and more healthy and more robust. And so... These are just a few of the, of the folks that we've been privileged to partner with through the years, and I'm asking you to consider partnering with them in terms of financial giving. Our church is long uh, committed to giving um, at least 10% of our own um, operating income here and our budget to, to go toward missions around the world. 
And that is exactly what we're seeking to do. We've, um, we have committed to each of these missionary partners a certain amount. I know there is sometimes some confusion. If, if you're not a member here, forgive me. I know some of this is, um, is maybe not quite as applicable to you. And we're going to open the scriptures in a moment. But, um, but some of you who, who, who have been around here for a while say, uh, you know, it's a little confusing how all of this works. And I just wanted to make it, set, make it a little more clear for you, hopefully. So we have a general fund that is when you give your tithes and offerings, that goes to support the local ministry here primarily and the outreaches that we do from here. But then also we have a mission fund, and that is specifically earmarked to go out beyond our local community and spread the gospel around the world. That ministry funds the commitments that we have made to a number of individual missionary partners. When that fund runs short, that is, not enough monies may have been earmarked, that you have not marked mission fund on your check and put it in the offering. If not enough funds come in to cover those commitments, we have decided as a church that, that we're committed to those people and it comes from all, of our, all the rest of our funds, our general fund. And so every time we commit to a missionary, every month we, we support that missionary faithfully every month for exactly what we have committed to him or her so that they can depend on, on that and uh, make their plans accordingly. Um, however, we do want to encourage folks to give specifically gifts that are designated to uh, the mission fund. Uh, we've talked about doing this in different ways and ways that might help make it more clear to you, and those discussions are ongoing, so you can talk to the deacons if you have any questions about how missions giving works. But uh, we want to encourage you to give specifically um, beginning, the f- beginning uh, in February this year until February of, until January of next year, so for the next year, and to indicate what you would feel the Lord would have you to commit either weekly, monthly, or maybe you just want to give one annual gift, but uh, what you feel the Lord would have you to give to the cause of worldwide evangelism in connection with our local church partners, our mission partners that are going out around the world. Um, And then our plan is to pray and to see what the Lord will do in terms of expanding and strengthening the ministry partnerships that we have. I know, for example, Brother Eric Mossman is praying that God would grant him a a greater uh, support base here in the United States while he's here. I know that uh, we had a missionary recently, Brother Jacob Norris, who has presented his ministry to us of campus evangelism, and that may be something that, uh, that we may consider. We have the Jensen family coming to minister to us in March who uh, have, are in the process of translating the Bible into a uh, tribal language in Cambodia and uh, are in- exquisitely prepared for that kind of ministry and have a real heart to train and encourage the brothers in the ch- Cambodian church. Um, so, but we, 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 in order to move forward to really to know what the Lord is going to enable us to do, it's going to be helpful for you to say, here's what I feel like I should do, our family should do, in terms of mission giving over this next year. And then we'll compile those and see how the Lord gives us the opportunity 
for new partnerships and the strengthening of our of our ministry. Um, so that's where we're going. If you have any questions, please feel free to let me know or one of the deacons know, and uh, we'll try to make it clear for you. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15, and we're going to look at the Word. I'd like to begin with Romans chapter 15 and verse number 8. Romans 15, 8, Paul says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. We read here how Christ became a servant. There He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of everything, the one who speaks and it is so, sitting on his high throne over all of his creation. He's the one around whom the angels gather and cry, holy, holy, holy. He commands thousands of thousands of spirits to do his bidding across the entire stretch of the universe, and he has long endured mankind's flagrant and open rebellion against him. I want you to see him there in your mind's eye. Our Lord sitting on his throne with fire in his eyes and a sharp sword coming out of his mouth, who is able to break the backs of all who oppose him with an iron rod. He is holy and sovereign. He is the judge of all the universe. He will establish righteousness to the ends of the earth. And His eyes pierce to our very souls. He, know, he pierces, His gaze pierces to our thoughts and our, to our intentions. And He is able to cast both body and soul into hell. But now, what is this? He takes off his robes of light and he clothes himself with frail humanity. He leaves his glory behind. The pleasures and the joys and the delights of all his rightful glory the ease and the comfort that he enjoys as the rightfully enthroned king of all. And look at him. Look at him now. He's coming down. 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 He's coming down into his own creation, into the brokenness, to his own people whom he has created and loved and blessed and how do they receive him? They say, we don't want you. Go back where you came from. Leave us alone or we will beat you. But look at him. What does he do for them? He teaches them. He heals them. He feeds them. 
He forgives them? Christ became a servant. A servant to the circumcised in Israel. Why would He do so? What was God's purpose in coming into this broken world? What is God's purpose in sending His Son to be made a servant, to be spit upon and to be humiliated and to lay down His life for His own? God's purpose is twofold according to this text. And I'd, like you to draw, I'd like you to draw your attention to those two reasons, those two purposes for which Christ became a servant to the circumcised. The first is that He might show God's truthfulness. Do you see that in the text? Are you all with me? Right? This is coming from the Bible. That's important. He came into this world as a servant to the circumcised in order to show God's faithfulness, God's truthfulness. Or to say it another way, according to the text, to confirm the promises that God had made to the patriarchs, right? You stop and think about those for a moment. Think about what you know about the Old Testament, the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all of, the, all of the promises that God made. God said, I will make your descendants like the sands of the sea and like the stars of the heaven. I will bless you. You will be fruitful beyond anything you have ever imagined. Your seed will cover the earth. I will lead you into a land of bounty where you will have everlasting rest from your enemies. He said to them, in you the whole world, the whole earth will be blessed. I will dwell in your midst and you with me in uninterrupted communion. He said, I will be a great king over you. I will rule you like the like the, the greatest king that you can only imagine, and you will be my people, enjoying my rule and submitting to me and following me, and it will be a kingdom of splendor and light and glory and justice and love. He said to them, I will dwell with you, and that glorious presence in your midst will be far greater than anything you've ever experienced in the tabernacle or the temple or anything else. He's made all of these precious promises. And the saints of all the Old Testament age held on to those promises. And they hoped in those promises. And they waited for those promises. And they encouraged themselves in those promises. And when they were tempted, they were guided by those promises. They never wavered from those promises, those who put their hope and trust in God. And they waited and they waited and they waited for the fulfillment of those promises. I mean, generation after generation came and went, waiting for the fulfillment of those promises that God had made to their fathers. Some believed the promises, but most sadly failed. But finally, 
Finally, the brilliant Son of Glory took off His robes of light and came down into this broken, vile world of humanity. God sent His own Son to show something about Himself. God sent His Son in the fullness of time in order to prove His faithfulness, to prove His truthfulness, to prove that all of His promises are yes and amen. It is so. God sent His Son into the world. And I say that this means something for us even now, even on this side of the coming of Christ, because we all understand, I think, that those promises fulfilled in Christ are yet awaiting their full consummation, the full, our full experience of their reality, their present reality. And, and whose heart in here doesn't long for and ache for the experience of the fulfillment of all those promises? Whose heart is not burdened by the brokenness in the world and the sinfulness of the old flesh? Whose heart does not cry out, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. And so, here we are, as recipients of the promises, with the foretaste of them, the, the earnest or the down payment of those promises in the Holy Spirit and in the life of the Spirit, and yet still wanting the full experience of them. And how does this leave us? It leaves us remembering this, that the promises of God are true, brothers and sisters, that what God says He will do, that He sent His Son in the first advent to confirm all of those promises, and they have been proven to be true in Him, and they will be fully realized in all who belong to Him now. Here you are waiting no, waiting for strength and waiting for provision. Here you and I are in our brokenness and, and our neediness and our humility, awaiting the consummation of those promises. And listen to, you, to me, God says to you this morning, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He says, it is done because I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The end is certain because it is being worked out by the sovereign Lord of all history who is certainly, listen to me, believe this today, He is certainly working out those promises and will bring them to their full consummate fulfillment in our lives. God is faithful. He is truthful. He sent His Son into the world that we might know that God is truthful and faithful to all of the promises that He made to our fathers. But there is, secondly, a further promise, a further purpose, excuse me, that is revealed in these verses, a purpose for the coming of Jesus Christ as a servant into the world. And I'd like to read the rest of the verses, and I want you to look for that second reason 
for which Christ came into the world as a servant of the circumcised. Look for the phrases that indicate that purpose. And secondly, look for the repeated emphasis within the Old Testament texts that Paul marshals to support that assertion. So begin, beginning in verse number 8. This is uh, Romans 15, 8. I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people, with His people. And again, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and in him will the Gentiles hope. Now he says, May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace, believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So there is uh, there's something that is repeated again and again in this passage. There are a couple of things, um, and you may have picked up on. One of them, there's a word, there's a single word that's repeated uh, six times. I'm talking about up through verse 12. You may have been centering on the word hope, and uh, that certainly is a big theme here. But there is a word that he's using six times throughout this passage that will tip us off as to what he's getting at. What other grand purpose Paul sees in the coming of the Messiah? And that word that's used six times is what? Gentiles. Gentiles, 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 Gentiles. Gentiles. Six times. So that's the word to concentrate on. It's the word ethne in Greek. Um, and it, you've, you probably can hear what it sounds like. Ethnicity is a good sort of English word to capture at least a connotation of this word. Uh, the Hebrew would say goyim, if you're familiar with that kind of term. The, not, not us, the heathen out there. Not the Jews, but all of the nations. All of the many peoples of the world, the godless peoples, right? This is God's people. Those are the godless peoples. That's the way the Bible talks about them. You, you, nations out there, you were once not my people, right? So this is the, the theme. He's, he's thinking about those peoples. The, the, the Latin is where we get the word Gentiles, the nations of the world, all of the nations of the world that are without God, the clans, the peoples, the nations, and what effect, now look at the text again, what effect does God intend among the nations by sending Christ as a servant? It is in the end, there, there, there's a key in order that phrase that helps us to see it. You see it? Verse number 9 in order that the Gentiles might glorify God 
for His mercy. This is the second great purpose for Christ coming into the world as a, as a servant, that the Gentiles might glorify God, that the nations of the world might glorify God for His mercy, that He might receive praise from all of the nations on earth. God's great purpose in the nations of the world is the calling out for His Son of a people to be His Son's inheritance to the glory of God's grace for all of eternity. This is God's great purpose. Now, I wonder if we really understand that God's ultimate purpose in providing redemption is not about mankind. To say it again, that God's ultimate purpose in saving a people is not centered in mankind, but rather in His own glory. That, in fact, is the greatest good in all the world. God's That God would be seen for who He is and would be praised for who He is is the greatest thing in all the world. God's glory is primary because God is the greatest being in the world. He is righteous. He is holy and good and wise and just and loving in contrast to all of the sinful, broken creation. He is worthy of praise. It would be the greatest sin not to seek the glory of the greatest thing. And so God seeks His own glory, for He alone deserves it. I'll never forget reading uh, the opening words of John Piper's book called Let the Nations Be Glad. I feel like it was one of the best book openings I've ever read. Here's the opening paragraph. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Sounds like a funny thing to say in a sermon where I'm encouraging you to give the missions, doesn't it? But listen to him. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. And that phrase, missions exists because worship doesn't. That phrase stuck out to me and just really got a hold of my mind. And, and, and I, as I was reading this passage, this is, that, I think, encapsulates what this is all about. Romans 15. To that end, that God may be glorified for His mercy, to that end, Christ came into the world as a servant. God is intent on glorifying Himself through Jesus Christ. But then I say this, now also with regard to this second purpose, that this emphasis on God's glory is not to the exclusion of the gospel's effect on the nations 
themselves. Look at the quotations again that, that, that Paul gathers here to support this uh, burden that he has, this, or this statement that he's making about the purpose for Christ's coming. Look at the quotations here again. There are five quotations, okay, from the historical books, from the law, from the writings, the poetry books of the Old Testament, the prophets. In other words, he marshals the entirety of the Old Testament, all of the types of uh, categories of Old Testament literature. He marshals the entire Old Testament to say, this is God's purpose. And all of his quotations are about the gospel's effect on the Gentile nations. And notice what that effect is. Look in verse 9, for example. Okay? This is a quotation from 2 Samuel 22, also from Psalm 18, they say the same. I will praise your name among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And it might sound like David is singing about God to the Gentiles, but notice what he says. I will praise your name, what? Among the Gentiles, among the nations, in the midst of the nations, I will praise and glorify God. And the context of verse 9 is the Gentile seeking uh, and, and glorifying God for His mercy. In other words, the, this, is, this is the anointed one standing in the midst of all of the nations of the world, leading them in corporate worship of God for His mercy. This is what is being pictured here. The nations are gathered together being led in worship being led in song, they are glorying. Notice they're not just saying, look at this, look at verse 9 again. What are they doing? They, in the end of the verse, what are they doing? They're singing to God's name. These are not people from all of the nations merely standing around saying, you know what, I have come to acknowledge that God is a merciful God. These are people who are so moved by His mercy that they're bursting forth in song. That's what's going on. That's what is envisioned. That God is out for nothing less than exuberant praise from the nations of the world for Himself and for His own Son. That is what He is about. And this happens every time we gather together and we sing the Psalms of David. And every time we sing the praises of God from our hearts, and every time when you sing and your heart is moved to where you say, yes, yes, Lord, God is receiving heartfelt praise and glory from the nations. Here we are, just look around, right? Here we are, we who were once not the people of God, outsiders, strangers to the covenants and the promise, now brought in to the people of God, made one with those promises and heirs of the kingdom that God has promised to all of those who love Him. We are singing with joy and delight and praising God earnestly for it. And you see the same kind of thing in all of these quotations, right? Look at them for a moment. Look at verse 10. There's a quotation from Deuteronomy 32. And what's the very first word? 
Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Once again, the the outsiders are brought in to the people of God and they are moved with joy in the Lord for his mercy. Look at verse 11. This is a quotation from Psalm 117. Let the peoples, what? Exult in him or extol him. Let the peoples rejoice in him. Look at verse 12. Here's a quotation from Isaiah 11. In him, the end of the verse, in him will the Gentiles hope. There is hope in their hearts now. Where once there was no hope, where once they were without God and without hope in the world, and now they have hope. Notice the effect of God's glorious grace upon the nations. How does it affect them? They burst forth with praise and singing and rejoicing and extolling and hoping. It is not God's ultimate purpose to crush humanity under the weight of His own glory. Now, don't get me wrong. God will be magnified. His justice, His good, righteous justice will be glorified even in the punishment, the eternal punishment of sinners. But what is ultimate is that God plans to elicit voluntary, heartfelt, earnest, passionate praise from people who have been truly astounded by His mercy. That's what He's after. That's what He is intent on accomplishing and giving to His own Son as a reward for His Son's perfect obedience and pleasing of Him in every way. God is going to give Him heartfelt worshipers, people who sing out of their amazement at His grace. In glorifying Himself among the nations, in glorifying Himself, do you see how this is working? God is bringing joy to the peoples. You see how those two things are coming together in this text? By glorifying Himself, which is His purpose, God is bringing joy to the peoples of the world. This is the great work of the gospel, that all the nations may rejoice in Christ. Jonathan Edwards said that God is glorified not only by His glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. God saved you so you would be amazed at His mercy so that you'd revel in it, that you would be overwhelmed by it and sing about it and exult in it, that you would praise the name of Jesus Christ and love it above every name in the entire world. Men are most joyful when they see the glory of God. And God is most glorified in us when we are joyful in Him for all of His mercies. Listen, don't be mistaken, Um, God isn't some sort of heavenly narcissist who is intent on selfishly uh, uh, 
selfishly bringing glory to Himself, uh, if I could say it that way. God exists rather as an, an eternally triune being. He is one and yet three and perfectly happy in Himself. The Father delights in the Son, and I want to tell you, always has. The Father rejoices in the Son, and the Son glories in His Father and pleases Him in every way. And before the beginning of the world, they determined to display, God the Father determined to display God the Son's glory in an overflow of their love, their mutual love one for another. God determined to lift up His Son and magnify His Son by working out a redemption of a innocent yet broken yet restored humanity. God chose to glorify His Son in that overarching arc of human history. And and that all of the the, the redemption from brokenness would be centered in His Son so that a whole world full of people would love and appreciate His Son like His Son truly is and like His Father has always loved Him. That's what God is intent to do, to glorify Jesus Christ before your eyes so you would be so in love with Christ that praise would flow from your heart and that he, that, that would happen not only in, in here, but in all of the nations of the world. God is intent on saving a people from every nation among men, saving them with such a great mercy that they freely and voluntarily fall on their faces and say, Christ, you are my Lord and King. You are my joy and delight, the lover of my soul, my Savior and my friend. All I have and all I need is Jesus Christ. God is intent that the Savior should be loved, my friends and that he should hear such heartfelt praise for all eternity. And God is intent that he should hear that heartfelt praise in Portuguese and Swahili and Mandarin and Jirai and French and Turkish and every other tongue on the face of the earth. God is so delighted in his son that he is determined that he should get the praise that he is due. David Brainerd, you've heard the name, missionary to the Native Americans back in the 1700s. He labored, really gave his life for them, Um, ended up very sick and frail and died, I believe, before he was age 30. Well, seven days before he passed away in 1747, he wrote this in his journal. Friday, October the 2nd, he said, My soul was this day at turns sweetly set on God. I longed to be with Him that I might behold His glory. Oh, that His kingdom might come into the world, that they might all love and glorify Him for what He is in Himself. You see what drove missions here? You see what drove a missionary to lay down his life? It was this great burning passion, this great purpose of God that the peoples of the world would, from their hearts, bless and praise the Savior. 
for such mercy as they could have never expected. That is what God is intent on doing for His Son, and He's going to do it all around the world. I want you to stop right now and just think for a few minutes about the mercies of God to you. Can you do that? I mean, have you tasted of the mercies of God? Just stop and think about the mercies of God for you. Remember for a moment how you were lost in your sin. Remember when you were in your time of deepest need, how you were covered with sin and with shame, or how you were broken in despair. And now remember how Jesus Christ came down and He met you there. And He overwhelmed you with mercy in the midst of your conviction, in the midst of your brokenness. He whispered His promises to you. He awakened your heart with precious assurances of the gospel. He gave you a vision of Himself. He overwhelmed you with forgiveness and filled your heart with unspeakable joy and full of glory and love and praise for Jesus Christ. Well, I'll tell you what, that is exactly that is exactly what God wants to do right now, even among the nations. That the nations might glorify God for His mercy. Why did God send His Son into the world made under, made under the law, made a servant? Why did He send His Son to lay down His life so that the nations would glorify God with joy for His mercy. Now that is a big vision. That is a vision that you could live and die for. That's a vision that you could leave everything behind and go to a faraway place to further. That the world would, of their own free hearts, bless and praise and glorify your Savior all around the world. That is a vision to spend and to be spent for. And that's exactly what we're going to pray that God would foster within us. I'm going to ask you to pray with me now. Would you do that? Oh Lord, forgive us for how quickly we forget about the mire from which you plucked us, about the, the astounding nature of your grace when we go on and take your goodness for granted. But Lord, for many of us, your grace, your mercies have been new and fresh this week because we've fallen. We've struggled. We've been hurting. You've come to us in our need. You've met us with the assurances of the Word. And so we feel your mercies very keenly this morning. And so we, had, we have had no trouble, some of us, with, with singing hymns of praise with every ounce of our hearts this morning. And we feel deeply 
a love for the Savior. And Lord, we know that you are intent on creating that feeling within the hearts and the souls of many people all over this world from every tribe and nation. And we pray that it may be so. That the nations would glorify you with joy for your mercies. That they would praise your Son. We ask that you would exalt Him and give a people to Him for His name's sake. We pray it in His name. Amen. The pianist plays. Would you take a moment and just pray about this great vision and calling that God has for the world and how you might be a part of it. Just sing one hymn in closing. Before I do, let me just uh, say one last word, and that is this. Maybe there's somebody here today and, and you feel like that you haven't really felt very amazed at Jesus. Maybe you feel like you've never felt that. Like this whole story about Jesus is just kind of intriguing, but it's not, I mean, it hasn't really gripped you in some sort of deep, way. And, and, and maybe, maybe that's you today. And maybe you even want, maybe you would even say that you might like it to, or you, 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 want, you want to understand what this is all about, what, what we're talking about. And so I would say to you a couple of things. Okay, first, this kind of Faith, humili humiliation, and amazement for mercy. Um, in some ways, you know, you're going to just have to get on your knees and just say, God, please open my eyes. Because it is, it, it's, a, it's a work of, of mercy. It's a work of grace itself. But you know what? I also know this. No one who really and truly and genuinely seeks after God 
will he hide himself from? Because it is all a work of his grace. Now, secondly, I'll say this, that a sense of amazement at the mercies of God comes necessarily by not first looking at mercy, but by first looking at my sin. In other words, it's like the, was it Newton that said, tis tis grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. That's where it starts. And then, grace, my fears relieved. In other words, mercy doesn't seem very astounding because we haven't seen ourselves before a holy God for who we really are as rebels, as people who have just taken for granted an advantage of all of his mercy, all of his graciousness, and who have resisted what he has said in rebellion against him and how awful that is. And, and maybe you've never stopped to even consider the, um, the depths of the way that sin has, has been a part of you. And and I've got to say, it starts there. It starts with seeing yourself in light of the holiness of the Almighty God. Only when when somebody is at the, only when somebody is humiliated under that, does God meet him with the promises of the gospel in such a way that he feels like a chained man who's had his chains burst and he feels as light as air so examine your heart you just go to God and you just talk to him about your sin and you ask him to open you up and just search you and and some of it is just continuing to hear the word of God and the conviction of the word of God that comes to bear but salvation happens where conviction meets the assurance of pardon. And there are plenty of people who want to have the assurance of pardon who never felt convicted. And I have a hard time imagining how any of them have come to truly experience the gospel. But when deep contrition meets, is met mercifully, by promises of forgiveness, that's where conversion takes place and the transformation of a soul. And so give you that word of encouragement to open yourself up to God in that way and um, ask him to search you.